Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Would you stand, please? I want you to stand for the reading of the Word, if you would. There's not too many things that we respect in our culture anymore. But honoring the word of God is one of those things that we want to hold on to. And so reading out of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he's spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word, upon our hearts and our minds to receive. Guide us this day, I pray. Be present in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We have been examining um, a series entitled Reconstructing Your Faith, something we conclude today. We began with a discussion of the church as incarnational. That in the same way God comes in the flesh, the church is to be in the flesh, in, gathered together. There's a significance to that. And I see many of you have taken that very seriously today as we are filled up in this place here today. When we are gathered, when we're in the flesh, when we're rubbing shoulders with each other, and inevitably we are going to rub each other wrong, and so we take offense. So we talked about how we handle offense and still stay in fellowship. We talked about how the church is the ecclesia, the Greek term for the called out ones. We're called out of the world in order to be holy. Not because holiness is cool, but because God is holy. And as we draw close to God, then we become holy. Certain things drop off. Certain things are added to us of his character. We talked about the significance of stones of remembrance, of putting altars and markers for significant moments when God has moved in our lives or shaped us especially in reconstructing faith. We want to go back to those points when God interceded, interacted with us as a point of reminder to strengthen us in the times that are difficult. And last week we talked about truth and how it matters. There's an objective element to it and what is our source of truth. And today I want to talk to you about the Jesus question. The Jesus question. Who is Jesus? Specifically, who is he to you? Deconstructing your faith, the phrase has become popular in recent times to individuals who have, have looked and, and, and either come to the realization that certain aspects of their faith were add-ons that were not rooted in Scripture, that were part of their church culture or their own personal identification. And so as they take those things away, sometimes by the time they're done, nothing's left and they fall away from the faith. But for those who are a little more diligent in that, there is an element of deconstruction where we come to awareness of certain things that really are not part of Scripture. There were things we were taught that were cultural in nature. But then when we're finished with that, we want to reconstruct our faith. We want to dig down deep and say, what is the truth? Where is the solidness of this thing? What, is, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And so that's what we've been walking through. And this is probably the most important part of this as we conclude this today, is the Jesus question. Who is he? Who is he to you? 
Now, many of you might be aware of C.S. Lewis's what was called the trilemma, lunatic, liar, or lord. That, that we look here and say, if you follow Jesus, then, and, then he's either a, a lunatic, he was a nutcase who claimed to be God, or he was a liar who was deceiving people, or he is who he said he was, Lord. You have only those three choices. You can't say, as we are wont to do, that he was a great teacher, he was a moral leader, he was a good guy. No, he was either a lunatic and should have been locked away, or a liar that should have been dealt with harshly for that sin, or he is who he said he was repeatedly, Lord, God in the flesh. Now, if we've accepted that, and the majority in this room probably have, and for those of you that still struggle with that, we're glad you're with us, at least for the ride. But for those of us who have accepted that part, then the next question I have for you, especially if you've served Christ for a lengthy period of time, is who is he specifically to you? How do you interpret him to be? How do you understand him to be? We tend to do that through our own individual lens. Is Jesus black or white or Asian? Depends on whether you're black or white or Asian. Would Jesus have marched on the Capitol on January 6th or would Jesus have been in the streets of Seattle and Portland? Is Jesus a Republican or a Democrat? Does he support this war or that war? Is he a socialist or a Democrat? Those things tend to be interpreted through our own lens for who we are. But who is Jesus? Objectively, himself. Because who he is is going to shape how you or I operate and function in life. Over and over again, over the years, I've heard the phrase, loving Jesus. And I don't have a problem with that phrase at all. I have very good, mature friends who use that phrase, but almost always when they use that phrase, it's coupled very closely to their expression of God, their worship of God. In latter years, I've seen some individuals detach that, and they rarely reference Jesus as God. They reference Jesus, and it's about loving Jesus But it's not about who he actually is as a person. It's more about his reflection or their reflection of themselves in him. We see this increasingly in our worship songs that come out in the church, capital C, today. They're far more romantic love songs than there are songs about his nature. There are more songs about us and our needs or the romantic elements of Jesus as our good buddy and great friend who approves of anything we do, whether it's marching or burning, Some of our worship songs kind of go like this. Love me tender, love me sweet. Never let me go. You have made my life complete and I love you so. Love me tender, love me dear. Tell me you are mine. I'll be yours through all the years until the end of time. Yeah, don't even try that. (laughs) Don't even go there. Some of you know that's not a worship song. That's Elvis, okay? But that's how so much of the things we, uh, tend to reflect in increasing times. Quite a contrast from holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning my song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Quite a bit of a difference between the two. Now you're sitting here saying, okay, so this is just an Old Testament slam fest where you're going to burn everyone and send them to hell. And that's not it at all. Stay with me on this. 
As we just read this one passage, it's talking about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, through whom the whole universe was created. That right there expands your mind to eternity. Hebrews chapter 12 goes on in verses 1 and 2a. says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us throw off those things. Let us change. Let us be transformed. And let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. When you're running a race, you don't pay attention to what's going on either side of you. You're running your race. And then this passage, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We fix our eyes upon him. And so, okay, our eyes are, are fixed upon him. And as our eyes are fixed upon him, what does that mean? Who is he? Well, Hebrews chapter 12 really takes this apart in a way. And I want you to follow this closely so you'll understand this. Hebrews chapter 12 starts like this. And it's a tale of two mountains, if you will. You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. The writer sitting here saying, look, you didn't, you didn't, this was not your encounter with God. This was the Jewish encounter in God. The first encounter they had with God was Mount Sinai, where they actually encounter him in flaming fire, darkness, gloom, whirlwind. He says, you didn't have that at Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. Can you imagine that? You're counting God and it's so awesome, so incredible. They said, please make it stop. It's overwhelming to us. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it was to be stoned to death. It was that set apart. You want to know how bad it was? How bad was it? Thank you. Moses himself was terrified. Moses, the friend of God, the one who, who first encounters God is this burning bush, and as he comes over, is told to take off his shoes for he's on holy ground. Don't bring the stuff that you stepped your feet into. Take that off. Come with bare feet. And, 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 and when he's given the charge to go into Egypt to draw the children out of Israel, or out of Egypt, rather, the, of Israel, out of Egypt, then, then he says, who will, I say, send him. And, and he just says, I am. Just say, I am sent you. I Yahweh. Moses himself, who had that experience, who did 10 plagues for Egypt, did part of the Red Sea, all this stuff. He's terrified at the sight and said, I'm terrified and trembling. So the writer says, look at you guys. You have not come to this terrifying, with trumpets blasting and thunder and lightning. He says, no, you've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city, not a desert experience, but a, a city experience here. Of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the countless thousands of angels and joyful gathering. You've come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. You're one of them. You've come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You've come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. What is happening here is, is simply this. In, in, in Sinai, there was a mountain that was fence, fenced off. There was no trespassing upon it. There was thunder, lightning, thick clouds. 
There's a sound of this trumpet blasting loud and terrifying. There's smoke like a furnace. There's earthquakes. They wanted this experience to stop. It was so overwhelming. It was so mind-shattering. Here's the interesting thing. All this fear didn't end up in promoting holiness in them. Forty days later, they throw all their gold into a pot and make a, 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 a golden calf, or as Aaron says to Moses later, we just threw all the gold and the calf just jumped out. Yeah, yeah right, Aaron. So four days later, they worship this golden calf. They say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. All the fear and trembling didn't change anything. All our fear, all our terror doesn't reform those things. But he says, here we're in a different place. We're no longer in the desert. He's brought us to a city, a place of celebration. No longer is it the, the, the isolation of the, of the desert experience. It's the cross. There's something different. If Mount Sinai was all about exclusion, then Mount Zion is all about invitation. If Mount Sinai is all about the law, Mount Zion is all full of grace. And so he's contrasting these two mountains. And this is really running great for us so far. And and it gets even better because the next passage, verse 24, says, says this. You have come to Jesus, it says, but the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people and to the sprinkled blood who speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for the vengeance like the blood of Abel. So you've come to Jesus. This is your experience now with Jesus. But then verse 25, the first two words say what? You guys are so, forgive me, I'm sorry, but so superior to first service. They could not seem to handle that, okay? You guys did. You are, I'm so proud of you. Um, I want you to say those two words again. Be careful. What's going on here? We've just said, we don't have this experience of the thunder and lightning and and all things here. We're coming to this mountain of grace and forgiveness and, and joy and all the rest. We come to Jesus. What's this be careful thing? Be careful that you don't refuse to listen to the one who's speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. That's not talking about the minister, whoever speaks. This is talking about Jesus himself, the Son of God, the one from whom all of creation. This is a really significant passage. It says, be careful. Why? Um, we don't understand this today um, in, our, in our society today. Jesus is referred to multiple times in Scripture as a king, as the absolute ruler. Now, we're a democratic society. We don't get this. We have our rights. We have our privileges. There's things we submit freely, but you don't dictate anything to us. And we've lost the understanding of understanding Jesus as a king, as one to whom we have absolute allegiance to, who completely owns us, that we are his assets. We don't understand this. 
And so we apply those same democratic principles to our lifestyles and to what we pick and choose of Scripture to keep or not. And and Jesus is our lover of our soul, but he's not that almighty God. And you need to understand that the kingdom of God has not nor ever will be a democracy. Now, I love democratic ideals amongst human beings. It tends to correct some worse tendencies. But the kingdom of God is not that. Today, we're no longer under law. We don't want to go back to that terrifying place. But if there's nothing of Sinai, if there's just sloppy kisses in our relationship with God and our understanding of Jesus, and there's no undercurrent or rumble of thunder or an echo of a trumpet, then there's something wrong with this. Growing up, if I mentioned the name of Jesus, it always came in the context of worshiping and following God Almighty. And we can't forget who he is. You think I'm overstating this because you're sitting here going, but we've come away from that. We've come to this place. And we have, but it's still saying, be careful. And then it goes on even further. In verse 26, it says, when God spoke from Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I'll shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. That only unshakable things will remain. And then let's follow this. Verse 28. Since we're receiving a kingdom that is unshakable... Let us be thankful and praise God by worshiping him with what? Yeah. How do we get there? We were on a happy, joyous mountaintop somewhere. And suddenly we're being told to be careful. And suddenly we're also told, worshiping with holy fear and awe. Jesus, we're still, he's our buddy, he's our pal, he's our redeemer, he's our friend. But he's also God. And there's something of reverence to be there. And if you think that was just a a misprint, go to the last line. For our God is what? That's the one you want to read at night, you know, when you're feeling warm and cuddly. Our God's a devouring fire. We're to worship him with holy fear and awe. And if you think this is legalistic, Expression, you're wrong. Mount Sinai, as I said, is all about the law. Zion's all about grace. But in the midst of this, there's a reverence and awe. And it's not just that he's there to serve our lives and our desires. That he is, in fact, God, the king, the ruler of all. Years ago, decades back, back in the 1900s, my father pastored here for about 18 years or so, and I served him on staff for about 10 of those. And we used to have a choir back here and small pews, short pews we referred to them. They never trusted us with a full pew, just a short pew. And we'd sit up here and big old pulpit here. And one Sunday I was making some announcement or some process of whatever I was supposed to be doing. And in the process of it, my dad corrected me on something that I'd missed. And he did it in a, in a kind of casual form. And, and I did just as casually kind of a shot back that within the context of the give and take of our relationship was not an issue at all. But in the setting here, I was serving him and he was the lead pastor and things were much more structured back then. Um, it was an inappropriate statement of disrespect. And I, I realized that because I was incredibly quick and clever in those days. Um, and also because the moment I made the statement, you heard this woo across the congregation. So I, I, I picked up on that. 
And, um, but the moment I said it, I realized the context. Again, our relationship, not a problem. We're, we're, we're father, son. It wouldn't, he, my dad was secure in his setup. It wasn't an issue at all. But in my role and what his role was for me to say that was, uh, was inappropriate. And finished what we were doing. I sat back. He went on with the message. And um, I, I, the whole time sitting up here. And when things were finished and as he's wrapping up the whole service and beginning to close down uh, the service, um, I came up and tapped. And I said, can I say something? And he gave me grace again. As I said, he gave grace far more than he should have half the time. And I said, look, I said something earlier that in the context of our relationship wasn't a problem. But I said in the context of my role here, it was inappropriate. And I want to apologize for that. And I took ownership for that. Um, Jesus is our friend. He is our redeemer. And this passage of scripture is not to take us back to a place to be dominated by fear or exclusion. But we should not release the holiness and the awe that goes along with treating and, and treating rather God or Jesus as a reflection. I want you to understand the contrast between the mountain of fear and the mountain of joy and the importance of this lens. So over here we have Sinai, thunder and lightning, very, very frightening. I don't think Freddie Mercury, whatever. Anyways, and and so this is this exclusionary, terrifying, powerful, holy event. And this is what the Jewish people would have known of God. This is their understanding of who God is. And so when then Jesus comes, God in the flesh, and it's a different mountain, it's a place of joy and celebration, of inclusivity, of grace, of all those things that are part of that. Of course they celebrated to receive that gospel, that good news. But you and I, in our democratic society, in the wealth of our background, We've known Christ for the most part only from this mountain experience. And many of us, unless we were trained appropriately, never got this lens. And if you don't have this lens, you don't appreciate or understand what you have here. And so Jesus becomes a wet, sloppy kiss. Now you're sitting here going, so we have to go back here? No. What I'm saying is, if you don't understand this, you will never fully understand this. Unless you see God as holy, as powerful and almighty, and Christ as the representation and physical expression of that, then this will have no meaning to you. This is why even though they say, look, you didn't come to this, you came to this. But be careful. Don't forget, there's holiness. There's awe here. Don't be casual and match this with our democratic ideals to minimize who Jesus is because the moment that we do that, we lose a key dimensionality of who Jesus is and he becomes a caricature instead of a full expression of God. To understand this, I need to take you to one more passage of scripture because you see, Isaiah got this. Isaiah wakes up one morning and he, he turns on the news and finds out that, that King Uzziah has died. This is a king who ruled for over 50 years. He defined Israel. He built it. He'd strengthened it. It was magnificent under Uzziah. Things were great under Uzziah. Suddenly Uzziah's dead. What does this mean now? 
this this is a scary, unsettled moment. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And so in the time that that the domestic element of leadership dies, God gives gives Isaiah an image of the king whose rulership never ends and never goes away. In other words, the king was dead, but there was still a king that was on the throne. Our political situations change. Our kings, our presidents, our governors, they come and they go, but the, but the king is still on the throne. The guy you want in the White House may not be there. Or he's there now and won't be tomorrow. The governorship will change. Mayors drop off and they rise and they fall. But the king is still on the throne. The reality is we do not depend upon a system as believers in God. We depend upon a savior. Do not ever get co-opted by anyone's temporal political agenda. We serve a king, and he's always on that throne. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The delight of a train indicated how great a king was, and it fills the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying. They're calling out to one another, not love. God is love. God is love. But it's not what they call out as his prime identifier. He said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voice at the doorpost and threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, all over, Almighty. What was it at Isaiah that changed his life? It was an image of the king. Notice how powerful is his train fills the temple. Notice what happens when we've seen the king. We confess our sin. I'm broken. I'm undone. The translation in the initial here says, I am ruined. And then the King James says, I'm undone. And another translation says, destroyed, cut off. So I've encountered the king and I am undone. I am ruined. I am destroyed. I am completely dismantled. And it's in that moment that God redeems Isaiah and draws him up. Once we've seen the king, once we've experienced that, there's something that completely shatters us. It breaks us. It undoes us. One of the things I haven't asked of you today is, have you ever seen the king? If you don't know this, then this is cheap and it doesn't mean anything. To say you love Jesus but don't see him as king and Lord and holy means that you're missing something powerful in this process. If you stand on Mount Zion in all the joy and celebration and grace that you have in forgiveness but don't have a quiet echo of trumpets, a gentle rumble of thunder underneath that, not that it ever drowns out the celebration but enough to give a bass tone and a fullness to your song, then you're shallow in what you're expressing. I can sit here and say, I walk in grace. And there's times for that celebration to be held, but for the most part, it's often a quieter, 
I walk in grace. By God's hand, I walk in grace. If you haven't been destroyed, undone, broken before him, then I don't know if you truly know Jesus. If you truly encounter the king, there's something that draws us out of this place of sin and into a place of celebration, but only after we've been shattered and broken. And through this lens, this means so much more and with greater depth and rootedness and maturity. Some of you know that I've joked over the years, I don't, you know, about cats and dogs. And yes, I'm in favor of dogs. I've teased about cats and their role in hell. (laughs) And most people know I'm kidding, though I did have one person show up one time. The wife came and the husband came and the wife came to challenge me on how my hatred of cats and how wrong that was. And I said, you realize that's hyperbole and it's humor. And this husband says, that's what I was telling her. And um, we resolved. I'm okay with cats. I I love cats. I, I, I love big cats, though. And there's a big difference to me between a house cat that goes meow and sits around and, and preens and, and, a, and, a, and a roaring lion. You've taken Jesus and you've made him a house cat. And he is a roaring lion of strength and beauty and power and grace. This house cat does what you want it to do. This lion, he does whatever he wants. That lion rules the house. That lion reigns and rules the kingdom. House cat. It's a whole different issue. Elizabeth Barrett Browning one time made this statement, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush is afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. (laughs) The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. There are times to declare Jesus loves me. This I know. There's times to sing our songs of romance and and there's nothing wrong with that. But there should be an undercurrent, a, a bass line of thunder, an echo of trumpets. In the joy that we celebrate, we should also remember exactly what we are experiencing, what we've been saved from. We worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That we are not, as Invictus would say, the captains of our own fate. That we are those who have encountered the king and become undone. True us in this wonderful place of grace. And that we say humbly, not with arrogance or or power, but just humbly that we walk in grace, maintained by his grace. Because I am not the king, and neither are you. There's only one. And we worship him, and we serve him. So the question I have for you today is, who is Jesus? Have you resolved that question? Because until you resolve that question with utter clarity in the light of Sinai and in the joy of Mount Zion and the cross, then you don't know Jesus. The Jews, for thousands of years, only knew this. They understood the nature of God. 
The pagans, they always dealt with an undeclared guilt that they couldn't ever get resolution from. Both groups. So when Jesus comes, the Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of the world, and grace is afforded, no longer exclusion, but inclusion. No longer the harshness, but the joy and the love. No longer legalism, but freedom. It was such good news to people. That's why they called it the gospel. The Jews heard all the thunder and lightning, and 40 days later, did a golden calf. It didn't stop them. Fear and terror only last so long. But the power of love, when we see this and then experience this, there is a multidimensional aspect to our spirit that just opens and we're undone. Father, we come before you and we are surrounded by a culture that doesn't understand you and we've come to realize that in our foolishness and in our limitations that our understanding of you ourselves has been so limited. God, I pray today that we would we would seize hold and stand strong on that mountaintop of grace that is Mount Zion that we join in that celebration, but I pray, Lord, that there'd be an echo of trumpets in the background, that there'd be a bass line of thunder, that we'd approach you still with an awe and with, with a reverence that would challenge us, that now that reverential awe coupled with the love and grace we have would allow us to go beyond the 40 days, decades, in serving you properly. And so this morning, with heads bowed, eyes closed, I ask you simply, are there those of you here today that would say, I have, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, even, but I have to admit, there's a part that I've made in my house cat. And today, I want him to be king. If that's you, just raise your hand quickly. I want to pray with you this morning, wherever you're at. Quickly. Quickly. Okay, just put it up and put it down. Others. Okay. Then I ask this, and I won't ask you to raise hands. But I'm going to tell you that everyone in this room has in some area of their life made him a house cat. And I'm going to tell you this right now. All of us should desire to make him king. So, Father, I pray right now. I pray for those that were particularly cognizant of specific moments and, and things they need to address and deal with. But I pray for all of us in this place, all of us who have had compartments in our lives that have been separated from your rulership, that we've acted without your direction and guidance, that, law, God, you would, would break through, that you would transform us in our worship even, of you, but certainly in an understanding of you, and that you begin that this morning, here, now, with us. Father, we're here to worship you. We're here to honor you above and before anything. 
Lord, I pray that even just in this impromptu moment of a raising of hands, that not only would that bring you delight and joy, but that there'd be those of us here that just might be freed up, not to go crazy, but just to be free in their physical expression of worship before you. So God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for Sinai, but I thank you so much more for the mountain that we stand upon now of grace and inclusion. Guide us as we continue our walk, I pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, I ask it. And the church said, 